Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Good morning, Ness family and those online watching. Uh, today's scripture reading will be in the uh, book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, 10th book in the New Testament. I don't know if that really helps. Um, so we'll be reading the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Well, thank you, Calvin. You know, of course, when we come to a book like the book of Ephesians, we recognize that this is, of course, it's a letter. And it's a letter that is written to a church. And the church that it's written to is, of course, the church of Ephesus. And what do you do when you receive a letter? When you get a letter, you read it. You read the whole letter, uh, all the way through, from top to bottom, of course. You wouldn't just read parts of it or small parts of it. You read the whole letter. And so this is what would have happened as the church received the letter. They would have read the whole thing together uh, in their hearing. And uh, I think this would actually be a great way to start our sermon series when we begin in a new book, is just to read the whole letter. And uh, I would encourage you to do so, actually to get the whole thing in its context. We do find the context of the letter within the reading of the whole letter. And this, of course, happened uh, within the churches, so Ephesus would have received this letter written particularly to them, but then they would have passed it on, and they would have sent someone who would either come from another church or they'd have a rep representative from their church who would go and would take it to the other churches, and they too would hear it, and they would read it all together, and then they would begin to pour through it. And I think that that is an important thing to remember as we come to a book, and particularly as we look at some of these chapters in greater detail. We never want to forget the context of the whole as we dig into the smaller parts of it. Each chapter and each paragraph builds upon the last to form one cohesive, one unified message. And some are longer than others, uh, but when you see it's in the full context, uh, of reading it all together is when we begin to unlock it and to understand its meaning. And so we have to be careful when we go through a book in this kind of detail that we keep that in mind. We remember all we have learned already and everywhere that we have been, even in these last number of messages that we have preached through. And I mention that now because we come to a shift in the book of Ephesians. We've gone through chapters 1 to 3. And chapters 1 to 3 have given us doctrinal truths things you need to know and believe about who God is and who you are and who God is and also who we are together. Ephesians does a great job of that. Foundational truths. 
And now in chapter 4, once Paul has laid this, this massive theological foundation, he can now begin to move on to the exhortations. This is the shifting point of the book, where we move from doctrinal truths to exhortations. And he begins by saying, I therefore urge you. It's actually interesting, uh, as you look through these doctrinal truths, uh, beginning in chapter 1, there's a parallel in chapter 4. You go on later in chapter 1, there's another parallel. He's talking about the doctrinal truths and then how we walk these things out. And so there's this parallelism that happens throughout the book of Ephesians when you really start to study it that starts to pop. And I think it was built, uh, Paul I'm sure knew this as he was writing through this. This was part of his writing style and his teaching. We actually saw this in Romans as well. Theological foundation of the gospel for 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 begins the exhortations of how we should practically be living. We talked about that when we were in the book of Romans. And actually, this, these verses that we just heard read from Ephesians 4 are a bit of a, a Pauline parallel, I guess you could call them, to Romans chapter 12. It's a bit of a parallel passage that we see there between these two. You can take a look at that if you want to write that down and take a look at it later to notice that. And that's really important that we keep in mind the gospel message that we have seen in chapters 1 to 3, or else we could be in the danger of moralism. If we were just to start in chapter 4, if we take all of these verses out of the context that they have just come from, they become good ways to live. Here's a good way for us to live if we forget the theological foundation and it becomes a religion of moralism and legalism rather than flowing out of the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. And we're drawn to these things. These kind of moral imperatives are things that we can be drawn towards, actually, because they're practical, they're beneficial, and they help us. But through it all, we can never forget the gospel of Jesus that makes this stuff possible. Here is why we can have the hope that we have in these areas, because of what He has done. We can now walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. If you remove that from its context, it becomes a legalism, it becomes moralism, and very difficult for us to do on our own. But when put into the context of the gospel, walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling becomes our greatest joy. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what this section is about. Living lives that are worthy of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And in particular view here, living as a community in unity. And you will see that this is the title of our message this morning. Living as a community in unity. But what is unity? Now, in a kind, it's kind of a word that gets thrown around a lot. We talk about unity, we hear about it, not just in churches, but really in all places where people gather. One of the most important elements of any sports team is their unity. How unified is this team? We always hear, when the Jets go bad, one of their sayings that gets thrown out is something's wrong in the dressing room. You ever heard that one? That means there's something wrong. There's some discord. Someone's not happy. Someone's talking. There's something going wrong. Sometimes it's one player who's divisive. You know, maybe they get their clothes thrown into the shower. You know, there's things that might happen to try to solve this internally. Strange things. Some, sometimes it's because things are just going wrong and everyone has stopped believing in each other. Lately, you may have noticed that the Jets have developed this motto. If you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. You know, have you heard that one? That's like the epitome of male bravado. We saw this the other night when Lowry fought Winnipeg's own Ryan Reeves. You know, one of your teammates receives a dirty hit and you jump in there and you pulverize the guy. You don't mess with one of our guys. 
Strangely enough, actually, this is important for a contending team. It shows unity amongst them, and it makes you want to play harder and to believe in yourself. There's a type of unity in that, actually, because you're all playing on the same team. You're all playing for the same reason. The goal is to win the cup. You all have that same crest on your jersey. There's something that brings you together. You all have the same leader that you're following. So in that sense, there is unity. But this isn't a permanent unity. You know, come to the end of the season and all of a sudden everything could change. Players get traded and now they're on the other team and you see them as an enemy to be defeated. Well, we long for unity. We long for a unity that will not be defeated. A unity that will last for the rest of time and for all eternity, in fact. And that's at the heart of community. I was actually reading a commentary this this past week on unity, and the author mentioned a young man that he knew. And this young man was so starved for positive interaction with others that he had his hair cut once a week just to be touched by another human in a non-threatening manner. I mean, doesn't that just break your heart? But this is kind of where we're at as a people. If we don't have these kind of deep connections, if we don't experience unity with one another, we know that we are missing something that we were designed for. We all desire to be in a community that is deep and meaningful and loving and that experiences true unity. Every person wants this. Biblical unity goes beyond surface things that just draw people together, and it focuses rather on eternal things. We are given a new common identity, we have been told throughout this book. And this common identity we share with every other believer in every other part of the world. And so that's why when we pray, like Craig prayed this morning, we pray for people, Christians from all over the world, who are going through times of persecution and trial. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and there is a unity that we experience even with them. So what is this unity? Well, we see in these first six verses that we are united by our calling, by our conduct, and by our confession. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's start with this. Could we actually put the slides up on this um, screen here as well? I would appreciate that. Thank you. So chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A calling to which we've been called. We are united by our calling. You see, Paul starts off by putting his own life out there as a bit of an example. He is saying that we are united in our calling and that we have to walk in a manner that is then worthy of that calling. People who together are walking in that manner are able to experience community and unity as we do this together. Now, to what extent are you willing to do that? To what extent are you willing to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling? For Paul, the extent was being a prisoner for the Lord. He was willing to be a prisoner for the Lord in order to do this. He didn't need to be there. We know he was in prison. He didn't claim to be a prisoner of Rome. He says he was a prisoner of Christ. If he wasn't 100% sold out for his faith, he wouldn't be there. He's there because of his faith, and he is going to hold on to that faith no matter what may come. He's walking in a manner that is worthy of his calling. That's how worthy his calling is, that he's willing to put himself into that place that he didn't need to be if he didn't believe in it. 
And so as a prisoner for the Lord, he says, we all have to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And the chapters 1 to 3, they laid out this calling. They laid out what it means to walk in that manner. This is how high the calling is, chapters 1 to 3 says. There were massive claims that were thrown out as truth. How we've been loved. How we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. How we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus. This is the weight of our calling. How we've been adopted as children of God. How we've been forgiven according to His grace. All of these things and so many more. This is the weight of it. And Paul says they're like a scale. The word worthy, to walk in a manner worthy, is actually the word axios. And it's where we get our word axiom, which to means to be of equal weight. So if we look at all of those things that chapter 1 to 3 is mentioned, of which I mentioned a few, that is the weight. And that is a massive, massive weight of beauty. Like it's not a heavy weight, it's a weight of beauty. Does our walk on the other side even lift that scale up off the ground? Are we walking our life as though all of those things are true? Because we all have the same calling here. It's the same for all of us. And we all help each other to get there. We all need help sometimes, most of the time. We need help in order to do this. Is that scale being weighed properly? Are we walking in a manner that is worthy of the weight of all we have learned of what is in that gospel scale? Unity is made possible through the fact that we all have the same eternal calling. We're all attempting to live a life that is in balance with what we have been given by God. We all know it. We all help each other. This is what it means to be a member, actually. It's a deep call that we have, a commitment, a covenant that we make to one another. I will help you. You help me. I'm willing to covenant even together with you in order to make this possible. This is the unity of calling. Second is the unity that is by our conduct. Verses 2 to 3. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what does this walk look like? Well, in short, it looks exactly like Jesus. If you want to know what this looks like, we look to Jesus. And here's some practical examples that Paul lays out here. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are practical examples of what our conduct is to look like together that will bring unity. The first grouping that he gives is humility and gentleness. Now, this was not a prized character trait in the Greco-Roman world, in the pagan world, to say the least. Humility and gentleness, you didn't get taught that in school. You weren't ever told that this was a trait that you should exude. In fact, it was detested. This was actually a detestable trait in the culture that they were a part of. No real man would exercise humility. In fact, pride was what you wanted. Humility was actually seen to be a slave-like quality. So no one would pursue that, if by any means possible. Let's, let's elevate pride, is what they were saying. Now, various forms of pride are, of course, making a comeback these days. We have a whole month that's called Pride Month, and this is wholly pagan. It is definitely a pagan and a Greco-Roman practice. 
They all go back to, to pagan Greek roots, this idea of pride. Now, I find this fascinating because if you wanted to attract someone to your religion, would you say that one of the most important traits that you're going to have to have is one of the most detested in your culture? Well, you want to be a Christian? Well, one of the traits of what it means to be a Christian is one of the most detestable traits that our culture and society holds up. Now, how many people do you think you'd get come into that religion? You would, never expect, you would never expect that that would do anything other than fail. But you know what's actually fascinating? I was thinking about this. That, you know, the Bible does this with all kinds of things. It holds up certain things biblically that the rest of culture said were detestable and that said weren't true. You know, the Bible does this with all kinds of things, even women. It, it, it elevated the position of women in a society that did not do that. It elevated this idea of sexuality where it said that Sex was to be something that happened between a man and a woman. It was something that was meant to happen within a marriage. That was like, oh, what, how many guys do you think you're going to attract to religion where the rest of society said everything other than that? Is this going to be a successful religion? Well, here and every other place in Scripture, it talks about this idea of humility. You can add that to the list of things that would not have made this an attractive position or a people to join together with. Humility. Who would join a religion with one of that as its tenets? Culture said pride was good, not humility. No one would get on board with that, but Christians did. Why? Well, obviously, this is the work of the Holy Spirit and our leader, Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate picture of humility. And so despite all odds of what you might think would happen, Christianity grows and it flourishes and many people come to see the beauty of the tenets of what it is holding up to be whole and good. It's incredible. You would think it would destroy your position in your movement, but rather it does the opposite. You see, no other religious leader modeled humility. All others exalted themselves and they took a higher place. Here's an opportunity for me to elevate myself, but Jesus humbled himself. 100% the opposite. He is absolutely unique in this. We will never exude humility like Jesus did because none of us had the position that Jesus had. We never had the position that Jesus had. And so we will not be able to extend ourselves to his level of humility, but we follow him in his humility. None of us came from on high and descended down low. And this passage is going to expand on that a little bit later. But because Jesus did, we follow him. And as we follow in humility, it brings unity to us as a community. A people who are saying we are willing to be humble. We are willing to humble ourselves before one another. Less of us looking to the needs of one another before our own needs is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It wasn't held up in society, nor is it today but we see why it is a beautiful and a good thing for us to do and why God is calling us to it. Serving one another, not vying for more privilege, but giving up our privilege. Completely countercultural. It was actually Jesus' humility, his gentleness, and his meekness that he came to describe himself by. When he was inviting people to come and follow him, he said that he was different from all of the other leaders. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said, You can come to me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do others know this about you? 
Would they describe you in this way? Or do you have the kind of personality that people have a bit of fear and, and trepidation of approaching? How easy is it to turn people off because of our harshness, our overbearing personality, and our pride? You know, a true leader leads with humility and is approachable and is teachable. This is something that we are all called to become. This is what our leader was, Jesus Christ. How many Christian leaders have fallen to this lately? You've seen it, you've heard about it. This humility and gentleness doesn't mean weakness. You can sometimes think of it that way. The Greco-Roman culture thought of it that way. But for Jesus, it was strength under control. It wasn't weakness, it was strength under control. We are united in our call to exercise humility and gentleness. And when we practice this together, it brings further unity among us. A beautiful thing. Second, kind of pairing that Paul gives there is patience and bearing with one another in love, which are coupled together with gentleness, is patience. Now, the word here is literally long-tempered. When we think of this idea of patience, and I often speak of this in wedding ceremonies, we are literally called to not have a short fuse with one another, but to have a long fuse. A very long fuse is what this is calling us to, this kind of patience in marriage and in church. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of that kind of patience, where someone had a long fuse with you. And I thank the Lord often that I'm married to one of the most patient people that I have ever met. I am regularly on the receiving end of that kind of patience and bearing with one another. And I am so grateful. You know, it's one of the most beautiful things and it never causes me to want to take advantage of it. You might think, well, I could never offer that to somebody because they're going to take advantage of it. You know, I would say, I would never say, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I know Tanya is going to be patient with me. No. It's the opposite. It causes me to strive to serve her better and to grow in my Christ-likeness. And I hope that you have people around you that can do that for you, that it can extend that kind of patience and bearing with one another because we all, at times, unfortunately, because we are sinful, people have to bear with us. If we are honest with ourselves, maybe it happens regularly, but it happens. Maybe it only happens every once in a while, but it happens. A people who are patient and who bear with one another, even though we are all so different. That's a beautiful community. Unity doesn't mean sameness. And we can offer this to one another because we ourselves have been and are currently on the receiving end of it. Because we have known it. You know, imagine the patience and the forbearing that Jesus has with you. If you think of this personally and you think of Jesus' patience and forbearing in your own life, when you are quick to speak, when you are quick to get angry, when you are hard-headed, when you are slow to get it, when you are just flat-out disobedient and stubborn, and yet He never gives up on you. He has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places despite what you have done and are doing. We are on the receiving end of everything that we are called to do for one another in this passage and so much more. So we say, how can I do this? Well, it's been done for you. And so how can we not do this? This gives us that motivation, that strength and ability. And so then how can we not offer this to one another? It is a beautiful thing. United in our conduct. And finally, we are united then as well in our confession. And uh, it's a good confession. 
I, and I don't know if uh, you know you picked the song, what's the the creedal song that we sang? I, we believe because you knew I was going to speak on this, Adam. But it just you know these things sometimes happen that way. But these kind of confessions that we have together as a church are good things to declare together. And here we see the Ephesian church that has this as a confession that they are confessing together when it says, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this would have been an early church creed. It's something that they would have recited together as a part of their corporate worship and their teaching. Maybe even in a song, they would have they might have put it to a song and sung those words together. And so this kind of goes back to those first three chapters of doctrine that Paul has laid out. And what this means is that doctrine is practical. It actually unites people together. Well, we have been taught about this doctrine, and now this becomes something that brings us together. We have a core belief of truth and understanding that we all hold together in common. And this creates community. I mean, beliefs always bring people together, don't they? I mean, if you believe in, in anything that you hold in common with someone else, you probably have a bit of a, a cohesion together with them. If you believe that gaming is a lot of fun, then you're going to be brought together with other gamers who you may have nothing else in common with. Or if you're from a certain area or a certain city, there's something that binds you together with others who are also from that place. Like I'm from Saskatoon. And there was a common belief that it was the only place worth living in Saskatchewan. Regina? No, no, no. No way. But I never would have joined forces to battle Regina. Like, I mean, it didn't mean that much to me. There was something about it, but it didn't mean that much. There was a limit to it. You know, actually, one year we took the kids down to South Dakota. And we had a little tent trailer that we pulled behind our vehicle. And we pulled into this giant parking lot, like this giant, um, like it was like an RV campground kind of a thing. And when you pulled in, it was like right across. Some of you have probably been there, Reptile Gardens, you know. Well, I know, obviously. Yeah, some of you have definitely been there. And like right across the street almost, this giant RV campground. And you pull in, and the first thing you see are these big, beautiful, shining RVs. You know, they're like the size of houses on wheels. And uh, we're looking at the number they gave us. It's like, no, we're not in this zone. And we're, like, we're driving through, and we find out that we're put right in the very back of this campsite. Like back, It was terrible back there. It was just dirt. You know, it was, it was not good. And there was no one else around us. But we saw one other trailer in the corner, and we looked. And it's like, oh, are those Manitoba plates on that vehicle? And, you know, they stuck the Manitobans in the back corner of this uh, RV lot. And uh, we thought, well, that looks about right. They also had a little tiny tent trailer that they had with all of their kids in it. But, you know, instantly you had this cohesion together. And so, you know, we got to, well, we actually found out that I think it was was it not one of like a soccer coach of one of the kids or something like that? So, you know, bizarre things happen. But you have this kind of like this thing that kind of brings you together. Your common beliefs, sometimes it's where you're from, sometimes it's all kinds of things. But when your common belief entails your identity, well, that's a whole other game. That's a whole other game when your entire identity is something that you share in common because your identity is who you are. Your identity is how you define yourself. And there are so many ways that you could self-identify these days. And which one is it going to be? And people pick and choose. And sometimes it's one and sometimes it's another. It kind of seems whatever suits people's agenda is where their identity seems to fall and land. Which one is it? Is it your 
gender? Is it your race? Is it your background? Is it your sexuality? Is it your politics? Is it your hobbies? Is it your role as a parent? I mean, that becomes a huge identity trap. But we are told that when we become a follower of Jesus, we become a whole new people. We have a true identity that we self-identify as and with. And back in chapter 2, we were told this. It's, it told, Paul told us this in chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. We are members of God's family. That is a whole new identity, and that identity is at the foundation of who we are. That is the most important identity that you have. You are only true identity that you have, and we have it in common. That's how unity can be maintained within the body of Christ. If you look for identity in anything else, it will disappoint. A hundred percent guarantee it will disappoint. There is no identity that can bear under the weight that you give it if it is anything other than what we hold in common in Jesus Christ. It will, anything else will never live up to the weight. And so this doctrine, this understanding that we all hold, it binds us together. And so when we declare it together, it is a powerful reminder. This is who we truly are. And this is who not we are now, but this is who we are for the rest of eternity. It is powerful. That is why this was a confession or a creed of the early church. And we can break this down into three sections, actually. And why three sections? These verses. Because this is a Trinitarian passage. So one of the, another one of the interesting things about Ephesians is that Paul throws in a number of Trinitarian passages within this uh, section. They're all over Ephesians. It's a perfect example. And, and I think it's good because people come with all sorts of ways to describe the Trinity. You've probably tried yourself. Sometimes it's electricity. Sometimes it's a light bulb. Sometimes it's an egg. You know, but they all fall short. These illustrations, they all fall short. It gives us a partial understanding, but it doesn't get us all the way there. And it usually makes a few mistakes along the way. But the best way to describe the Trinity or think about the Trinity is to simply take a look at how the Bible talks about this reality. God is three persons. One God, three persons. We're never going to completely wrap our heads around this concept on this side of heaven, but we know all about it. We know what it looks like. We're told everything we need to know about it. We know what it looks like and we know what each person's function is within the Trinity. And so I think it's best to keep our focus on that rather than coming up with an earthly illustration, though they can at times be helpful. But here Paul says, number one, we are one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Here we see that this Holy Spirit that accomplishes all that we have been talking about. Why can this happen? The Spirit creates, the Spirit fills, the Spirit coordinates, it orchestrates, and it empowers the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit does this for us as a body. And this is why there is a powerful connection that you have when you meet another believer in a faraway place of the world. Have you ever experienced that? Randomly meeting someone in a far-off place or worshiping in a foreign country. There is a deep connection that is made possible, and that's the Holy Spirit that is at work. There's a unity that is there, even though this is a people you know nothing of, and it is awesome. So the first doubling there is the Holy Spirit. The second, it says, one hope, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism. And here we see that the word Lord means Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Jesus that we have in view here. One hope in Jesus based in our one faith and our common baptism. See, our hope is in Jesus, and as our Lord, He creates one faith amongst us because He is the object and the focus of our belief. So that's one faith, all moving in that direction. Remember back in uh, the chapter, we were told that at one time we were without hope, but now we have hope in Jesus. And we confess Jesus as Lord. You know, we think of that old song, He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. We, we confess Jesus as Lord together. And when the early Christians said this, they were saying, like it was, it was really something to say Jesus is Lord, because they were saying, when they said that, they were saying Caesar is not Lord. If you said Jesus is Lord, you were saying Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. And that was a big statement to make. When Jewish people said it, that's a big statement for Jewish people, because they were boldly identifying Jesus with God. When you say Jesus is Lord, they're saying Jesus is God. So, this confession, this is not just empty creedal affirmation for early believers. This confession could literally cause you to lose your head, like literally. Whether you were Gentile or Jew, to say Jesus is Lord, you are saying that other things in your life are not Lord. Jesus is. And so that's an important thing to say. That's powerful. What do you need to declare Jesus over in your life? There may be things in our life that we have not said Jesus is Lord, and there's other things that we hold up as, as maybe being Lord of our life, and maybe not purposefully, but we found that they have become that. And so it becomes a powerful thing for us to say, Jesus is Lord, even in those areas. A people who have declared together that Jesus is Lord, that's what membership at Ness is, is saying. We all declare this in our one faith together. And then one baptism. And I don't think Paul is talking here about literally about being baptized together per se, but rather the baptism that we all have as Christians in Jesus Christ. And what this is saying here is that we are all immersed into Jesus together. And our water baptism portrays this. It's immersion. That's what the word means. It literally is translated as to fully immerse, to fully make wet, to be fully whelmed. That's what the word baptism means. And that's what we are in Christ. So that's a beautiful picture of what we are in Jesus Christ. And it's not a little sprinkling of water dribbling down your forehead. It's not pouring water over a baby's head. That's not New Testament, New Covenant baptism. That's a poor picture of what we are in Christ. When we declare Jesus as Lord, we are fully immersed in Him. Fully. All of us. And so when I baptize you, as some of you know, you go all the way under, all the way, right down. Sometimes it's a struggle to get some people back up because the water in the tank is only like halfway up my thighs. It's not like, you know, you have these pictures of being in a lake where you're like chest height and you can just go like that. But here we really got to get down. So we got to work. We got to work at getting it there. But I've always got everybody back up. I haven't drowned anybody yet. I'm still at 100% success rate, so don't worry. But if I notice the tip of your nose isn't under, I'm going to push you down a little bit hard. Because sometimes it's on the, first, on the first push, you know, maybe you took a deep breath of air in, and so your lungs are filled with air and you're kind of floating, but, you know, you're going to get pushed all the way under because I don't want to deprive you of the full meaning of New Testament baptism. 
Like, it's funny, but it's real. Like, that's what it really means. Like, you are fully immersed into Jesus Christ our Lord based on the profession of your faith. It is very obvious. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one immersion baptism. Why, we are Baptists, so we got to really, you know, hit on this, right? This is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus, and this brings unity. Now, the third grouping is very, is very obvious. One God and one Father of all. So this is obvious. We've, we've had the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and now God. And here we have that great Ephesians emphasis on our shared paternity. We all have the same Father. We are all adopted children of God. We're a family through Him. And so all this means is that our unity comes from seven grand unities that are all rooted together in the Trinity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Seven, the number of perfection, the number of completeness. See, the implication of this is that our unity, it is eternity, it is eternal, and it is unbreakable. And so you could look around and you can see brothers and sisters who are sitting all around you and they will be with you forever. <laughs> yeah, don't let that scare you off though. You know. <laughs> they're actually they're going to be much easier to deal with in heaven. I promise you. <laughs> when you remove those parts of us that are less desirable, you know, you don't have to worry about being, you know, sometimes you think that do I want to be with this person forever? They will be a different person, I guarantee you. They will be much easier to be around after sin has left their mortal bodies. So will you, trust me. But the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. And so then let's do as we are called to do in verse 3. This is our call. Let's be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something that we are called to, and it's an action that we can't get lazy in. We have to fight for it, we have to contend for it, and we have to be willing to put others before ourselves. We have to be prepared to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. We have the highest calling, God who loved us, a God who gave us His Son, Jesus Christ, who took on the greatest act of humility that has ever been given. He came from the highest place to the lowest place so that you and I could be taken from our lowest state and we could be lifted up to receive every blessing in the heavenly places. That's worth living for. That's worth giving our all for. For Paul, it meant imprisonment. What does it mean? for you. Walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. This is our creed. This is our unity. Let's pray. Father God, we are just so blessed as we read through these passages, as we just like dig down and we just like understand the meaning of what it is that we have been given in Jesus Christ. We are overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed with gratitude, that gratefulness that comes when we understand who we are and what we have been given and what you have called us to. And so, Father, I pray that together as a people, we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And Father, we pray that for our church here, and we pray that for the other gospel churches in our neighborhood, in our community, in this city, that we would see an incredible amount of unity and of harmony centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the bond of peace, and that there would be a health and a growth amongst themselves, amongst ourselves here, and amongst those who would be even around us that yet need to hear this message. So God, we thank you that we can have this and that we can walk this out. So be with us now, Father, we pray, that we would do this faithfully and that we would be faithful to the call that you have given us as a church in maintaining this unity, eager to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.